Before we continue our worship by receiving offering, I'd like to read a text from Scripture. All the Gospels have something to do to report about Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. So this is from John's Gospel. It's a short version. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Let's pray. Father, like Jesus' disciples, we don't understand. We have a perspective that they didn't. We know what happened a week after this Sunday where they celebrated the the entrance of the king into Jerusalem where your word already said he would come humble sitting on a donkey we wouldn't do it that way and we wouldn't do it that way if we were that king and had the choice to not be crucified to not suffer and die for sin but father thank you that your son Jesus is that king who is the king of love, the king of truth, the king of mercy, the king of justice, the king of our salvation. And when they cried Hosanna, they spoke more than they knew, meaning God saves. This is our salvation. This is the one who saves. And so thank you, Father, for giving us so rich a gift as your son, Jesus Christ. Because of that, Father, We have it in our DNA. If we've known Jesus, if we have put our trust in him, if we have his life coursing in our spiritual veins, we have that impulse to be givers. And, of course, that doesn't refer just to giving money to church ministry or any other monetary giving, but because you use these funds for the furtherance of the gospel, for the making known of Christ, we gladly give back to you what you first entrusted to us. Everything we have, Father, comes from you. Every good thing that we have. Sin is original to us. That's not from you. But all else we have comes from you. So receive these gifts. Receive these offerings, Father. In your grace and in your power, multiply them for building up of the church, growing us up in Christ, spreading the gospel in our neighborhood and among the nations. Cause us to be joyfully giving, Father, to your cause. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. So we're continuing our journey through 1 John, looking at this big theme of John's, which is true life, meaning eternal life, meaning the life of Christ in his people. And how do we know that we have eternal life is a big question that John is is asking and answering. So last week, we took a peek at uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. And in that, we saw that uh, 
how, how can we know that we know Christ? And that's by keeping his commandments. Now John's going to zero in in a big way on one of those commandments, a big general commandment, which is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's read this text together from 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. These are the words of the living God. So as I said, John zeroes in on this one big commandment, Verse 7 and verse 8 don't yet tell us what that commandment is. It kind of holds and builds suspense. He tells us in in verse 9 what the actual commandment is. But he kind of warms us up for it. In verse 7, he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment but an old commandment. John says he's not writing to them a new commandment. Rather, he's just affirming the old commandment, the one that they learned in the beginning, the one that they learned when they first came to Christ. And we find that that was as old as Moses back in the Old, Old Testament. Back in that book of, book of Levit, Leviticus that many of you have even memorized Leviticus, right? How many of you have memorized the book of Levit, Leviticus? Need to get going on that one. Probably the kids in uh, Harvest Kids have, but not us. Anyway, but we kind of think that is a sterile book, but it's not. In that book we find this command, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this wasn't the first time God thought of it. It was God's design for people all along to love one another. But that's when it shows up in Scripture. So John uh, says this is an old commandment that you've learned in, in your early days of coming to Christ. By the way, John should know better than to call something old, right? I mean, if he wants to be hip, you know, what's cool is always new. But actually, in verse 8, he does tell us what's new. So let's look at verse 8. In verse 8... John says, at the same time, it is a new commandment. All right, so there's something new about it that I'm writing to you. It's a new commandment, and he says it's true in two senses. It's true in him, and it's true in you. It's true in Christ, and it's true in you. So first of all, John says it's, it's, this commandment is new in Christ, and it means brought to reality in Christ. So how has this commandment to love been made new in Christ? Well, I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and following. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along. It won't be on the screen. But I just want us to... It's all over the New Testament. This is just one part of what we can see about how Christ has loved us in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. How, did, how has this commandment to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ been made new in Christ? And Paul writes, For while we were still weak, 
meaning unable to do what pleases God, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But, and here's the key verse, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we who know Christ, we've known him for some months and years, or even if you're brand new, you know that's a great truth. But what did it accomplish? What did, what did, I mean, I could die for you, but, and maybe that would help you, protect you or whatever, but what did Christ accomplish by dying for us? And Paul tells us in the following verse, in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. We've been justified by the death of Christ and saved from God's wrath. So that is the way Christ loved us. He goes on and says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled we shall be saved by his life. So we see that not only did Christ love us by dying for our sins, but also by providing ongoing forgiveness and cleansing from sin. He says he keeps us saved. His love is never disrupted because he's done everything that we, he needed to save us in the first place. He just, he's provided everything he needed, we needed in order to keep us saved. And so that's good to know because we can have good intentions in loving people but not be able to carry through what we promise. Have you ever run into that before? Someone promises something and they do it with good intentions and we say that, you know, well, he meant well or she meant well and he just couldn't follow through with it. Sort of like the government, Right? Of course, we wonder whether they mean well. But, um, but Jesus was able to follow through. He was able to do what he loved us for. So that's a great thing. Secondly, the way this commandment is new, it's not only new and that Christ has fulfilled all that we needed to be saved from God's wrath, be justified by his blood and to keep us saved, which is a pretty great package, but it's true in us. He says it's true in believers. So in what way is it true in us, this commandment to love one another? Well, one way it's true is now that we have been given the power to love as Jesus loved. He doesn't just command us to do it and not give us what we need to do it. He's given us the power to love as Jesus because Christ is in us, and Christ is the lover. So we have access to his power. And that, again, is all over the Scripture, the New Testament as well. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, having been rooted and grounded in love, says one scripture. So for Christ to be in us means we have his capacity to love his people. Another way it's true in us, this commandment to love one another is true in us, is new in us, is that we are to love one another just as Christ loved us. It's just that simple or just that hard. It's from John 13, where Jesus said, this is after he washed the disciples' feet, a new commandment I give to you. So he called it a new commandment, that you love one another. Well, that's not the totally new part, but here's what's new. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he went on and said, by this all people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. About a century after John, there was a church father called named Tertullian, and he writes that the pagans of his day marveled at the love of the Christian fellowship, especially as they faced sometimes ferocious persecution. And they, they wrote and remarked things like this. See how they love one another, how they are ready to die for one another. 
Now, we may not all have to physically die for one another, although we should be ready to do that. But uh, what does it look like? What does it mean to love one another as Christ loved us? Well, it means we love one another as Christ loved his disciples. How he loves us? By being patient with them. Being patient. Even in our own families, being patient with one another. Kids being patient with parents. Parents being patient with kids. Forgiving them. Serving them. We'll talk more about these things in a little bit. But uh, in the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God may be glorified through Christ. We put other needs above our own. I listened to, or actually saw, a, a video testimony this week of a gentleman who had for years been resisting the gospel. He considered himself to be religious. He just didn't have a clear belief in Christ as a Savior. And what drew him in was seeing how the church who ministered to him loved one another. Not only did they love him, but they loved one another. And that attracted him and drew him in. And he eventually gave his life to Christ. So it's very attractive. Now, this doesn't mean that the priority of loving one another doesn't mean that we don't love people who are not Christians. Of course, we do, and we are to do that. But that we love our fellow Christians as a family. You know, and God set this model in motion that it's not that, well, I only have so much love to give, so I need to reserve some for Christians and some for non-Christians. You know, in the Trinity, for example, they have infinite love for one another. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love one another with an infinite love because of who they are. But they love us greatly, so they have love to spare for us. More than that, they have a powerful love for us. Or, uh, like in a marriage, the priority relationship, by the way, if you didn't know this, if you're married, you know that you're supposed to love your spouse more than your kids? You are. But does that mean you don't have enough reserve to love your kids? No. The best thing you can do for your kids is to love your spouse. Husbands love your wives. Wives love your husband. That's the best thing. You, and, and out of that comes a richer love than if you don't do that. So that's how it works. We love the best, healthiest kind of love we have to, to, come, to love others with is how we love God and within a family situation. So we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does that mean we have nothing left over for other people? No, because we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're able to love others more and better. So that's, that's why I say this doesn't mean that priority is to love your family, but not to the exclusion of, of those who are outside the family of God. But it's, um, it's really the primary testimony we have. That's what Jesus said. Testimony we have, the reality of him is that he said, by this all people will know you're my disciples. If you have love for them, well... Yeah, but Jesus said, if you have love for one another. So that, that's how that works. So the commandment, he says, is true in Christ, and it's true in us. He says, because the darkness is passing away, this is still verse 8, and the true light is already shining. The commandment to love our brothers in Christ is true in Christ and in Christians because the darkness is passing away. Darkness is the anti-God, anti-Christ mindset that opposes who God is. God is light. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness. There's not even a sunspot in God. He's completely light. He's completely good. He's completely righteous. He's completely true. There's not a fragment of falsity or anything wrong in him at all. And so uh, that the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining because God has sent Jesus, who is the light, into the world. 
So we live in this age where uh, the, the light is, be, is overcoming the darkness. Now, if, as far as raw power, it's never been a contest between God, who is light, and the powers of this present darkness. If God had wanted to eradicate darkness like that, he could have done it like that. Had he done it, it would not have gone well for us because all of us were infected by darkness. And so, because God loved us, he tempered his defeat of darkness by the sending of his son, Jesus, who is the light of the world. Jesus, who is the goodness, the perfect goodness, the perfect righteousness, the perfect truth of God. And in that, in his suffering and death for us, he accomplished the defeat of darkness by the light of his, the glory of his life and because of his great love. So the light of the gospel, the good news that Christ overcame the darkness of sin and death for us is the liberating truth that delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, delivers us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he made those who receive him light. Did you know that? Like, you're shining if you're in Christ. That's what it says and Paul wrote in Ephesians 5. At one time, you were darkness. Not just that you had darkness, or not just you had some dark parts. You were darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. You are, and therefore, we are to walk as children of light. So this light-darkness thing is a big theme in Scripture. Now, you don't have, I don't have to list for you the things in the world that would say there's still a lot of darkness. In fact, even those of us who are children of light by, by the grace of Christ... We still have dark battles, don't we? We have dark thoughts. We have dark deeds. But we're just not total darkness anymore because we, the light is broken in. But uh, just, to, just to remind you, in case you think this world's getting better, we've, uh, we, we've got the darkness of war, killings in schools, human trafficking, broken families, gender and sexual identity distortion, road rage, drug and alcohol addiction and associated crimes, identity theft, and on and on and on and on I could go to depress us about how dark things are in this world. But we're told that the light has broken in. The darkness has been defeated, and the process of, of spreading that defeat of darkness is going on through Christ, through his people. We get to, we get to be spreaders of light but we live in the age when darkness is passing away. The true light is shining. Jesus is the light, and the major expression of the light of Christ in us is loving one another. So verse 9, finally, John tells us, what is his command? He now tells us it's loving one another. We kind of imported that in the first two verses because that's what he was talking about, the commandment. In verse 9, he says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So this is John doing what he's done Several times he's given us these phrases about claims that we might make, even though we may not use this exact language. Claiming to be in the light is simply claiming to be a Christian. Even as earlier he talked about, uh, if we say we have fellowship with God, or if we claim to know God, or if we say that we abide in Christ, all of that is saying, I, have, I believe in Christ, I'm a Christian. And he says there's tests to follow up on that, to validate those claims. And so the one that he says here is, if you say you're in the light, you're saying, I'm in, I am in Christ who is light. He is perfect in his righteousness and holiness and truth. 
If you say that, if you say you're in Christ, whoever says that and yet hates his brother and sister in Christ, or sister in Christ, no matter what he says, he is still in darkness. He is still in darkness. Well, you say, oh, all right, so help me with that. Uh, How do we hate other Christians? Well, that's easy. I mean, not that it's so easy to hate other Christians, which it can be, but to, to say what it means, Jesus said in John 13, we read this earlier, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you are also to love one another. So if you don't do that, you're hating other Christians. If you don't love them the way Jesus loved. So hate is not just an intense negative emotion. It, includes, it can include that. Uh, hate obviously includes doing evil and cruel things toward other believers. That's hating them. As is speaking evil and cruel things. That's not the way Christ loved us, is doing evil and speaking evil about us. Uh, I, I wish I could assume that as Christians we don't do that, but you know that we do do those things. Um, are you ever shocked at how wrong Christians treat one another? Have you ever been shocked at the way you treat other Christians? So we know that we still have a problem with, with the big wrong things. But what is the most, the most significant way that Jesus has not hated us? So we can talk about how Jesus has not hated us. Well, we know he paid the price for our sins, which he hated. He hated our sins, but rather than punishing us, he took the punishment on himself so that he could forgive us and free us from our sins. So Paul says we are to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave us. You say, but how can I forgive when they, what they did to me was so wrong? How can I do that when what they did for, to me is so wrong? Well, just what the Scripture says. As God in Christ has forgiven us. God forgave us not just by saying, ah, oh, I don't care, they, you know, I'll just let him off the hook. No, he forgave us in Christ. Christ's sacrifice for our sins, his death for us. And so that's how we forgive others. We don't just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. We say, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, when someone's done, done wrong to us. Well, it actually does matter. We forgive not just because sin doesn't matter, but because God in Christ has forgiven them or provided for forgiveness, and we forgive on the same basis. Because of what Christ has done for me, I forgive you. That's how we forgive even the worst of the worst. By the very nature of it, someone bears the cost of sin, and Christ bears the ultimate cost of sin. And we know that in him all wrongs will be righted, will be paid for, or are paid for. Another way Christians love and don't hate other Christians is that they have fellowship with them. That means you spend time with other Christians. That means that you share life with other Christians. That means you worship with Christians. You study God's word with them. That's why we come together as church, family, uh, not just on Sundays, but in small groups, community groups, and other settings. Because we love one another, we need to spend time together, but not just hang out together. We do. We can do that, and we do do that. But we do it in faith-activating love deeds. We meet one another's needs together. We share the Lord's Supper. We encourage one another and serve together. And the reason that John had to write this is because there were some in their midst who exited the church, and not just the church locally, but they exited the Christian faith family. 
that John is, is encouraging them, that if they do belong to him, they will not just leave the church family. They won't leave the Christian faith, faith family. Today, there are many who say they love Jesus. They just don't love the church. And they show it by not participating in any kind of Christian fellowship. That can't be because built into us is that need and that desire and that purpose that we come together around the things of Christ because we're a family. Then, in verse 10, John says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So whoever whoever loves his brother or sister in Christ doesn't need to even claim he's in the light. He just says whoever loves his brother in Christ abides in the light. It's just obvious. He obviously abides. That means to remain in, to live in Christ's light, because Christ's light causes and teaches those in whom it shines to love those whom he loves. He lives in Christ's light, and Christ's light lives in him. He sees and savors the light of Christ, goodness, righteousness, and truth, and is being transformed by Christ to love like he loves. And therefore, he says, in him there is no cause for stumbling. What does that mean? It means there's no cause for stumbling in, hating, not loving other Christians. The word is, we get the word scandalize in English from it. There's no scandal, there's no rejection of the love of Christ for his people. There's nothing in him that will ensnare him in the sin of hating fellow Christians. He will not reject fellowshipping with them. He will act toward them, speak and think about them as Jesus would, as Jesus does. And again, I'll, I'll look at Apostle Paul uh, where he gives us a, a great summary of what love looks like. There's lots of places we can go, but pretty familiar text to a lot of us, 1 Corinthians 13. And again, I'm just going to read a few verses. You're welcome to look at it in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13. And in this, Paul says this is what love is and what love does. And you could substitute Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. And I have to ask, am I patient and kind? If I love like Jesus, I am. Love does not envy or boast. Do I envy what other people have and are? Or do I boast in what I have that they don't have? Or do I think, boast if I don't speak it out? It's not arrogant. Am I, always, am I always right? Do I think I'm always right? Do I insist on always being right? Or rude. Do I treat other people rudely? Do I speak foul language about them? Do I act rudely to them? He says, love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So love is not just tolerant of everything. Love does not rejoice. Love is sad. Love is grieved. Love hates wrongdoing. And love rejoices in the truth. So do I, do I ever rejoice at what's wrong and not love what's true? That's not love. If I love, I'm always going to be grieved at what's wrong, and I'm always going to love what's true. And then finally, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That doesn't mean that love is gullible and just puts up with stuff without any discernment. It does mean that love endures and, and um, bears a lot of hard things, 
love will bear and endure evil in order to love and believes God and hopes in God for good things to come. So that's what love is. So that's just a quick snapshot of a passage that we could spend the whole time on this one passage. But just to say, we have this template of this is what love looks like. And then, in verse 11, John goes back to showing the negative of what love is not. He says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John states again the certain truth that if a person hates his Christian brother, he is in the darkness. He doesn't have Christ's light in his life. He walks in the darkness. His conduct is not empowered or purified by the light of Christ. We know that because in 1 John 1, 7, John wrote this, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So that doesn't happen when we live and conduct ourselves in the darkness. So he says the hater, the one who hates, the one who doesn't love other Christians, is not only is in the darkness, not only walks in the darkness, but he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, I, I looked this up, and being in darkness doesn't cause our physical eyes to be blind. If you're in darkness for a really long time and you come out and, and you go walk into the light, then it's going to cause your eyes to, to strain and hurt. But you don't go blind by being in physical darkness. But spiritual darkness does blind your eyes, blind your spiritual eyes. Spiritual darkness that resists the light of Christ's truth becomes a spiritually blinding darkness. The result is the darkness-blinded person can't see where he's going. In other words, he can't perceive that hating his brother is a sin. That's the problem. People don't, when, you, when you're spiritually blind, you can't see that what you're doing is sin. Jesus said this, the spiritual leaders in his day were blind because they couldn't see what they were doing was sinful. And so there, it just takes a miracle to convince them. Um, he, the person who's spiritually blinded can't make the connection that his profession to be in Christ's light is invalidated by not loving his brother. In other words, he can't see that the fact that he's living the way he is makes his profession of faith invalid. He just can't get that. He thinks he's religious. He thinks he's spiritual. But he's really spiritually blind. It's the worst state to be in. He blindly goes about harming Christians and the cause of the gospel. He's blinded to the glory of the gospel itself. He may be, as I said, a religious or spiritual person, but doesn't have true life in Christ. Twenty years ago, in April 1994, Rwanda descended into genocide. Over the course of 100 days, at least 800,000 people were slaughtered mostly from the minority Tutsi ethnic group. The Rwandan genocide saw people killed at a speed and a scale not seen since World War II. It was one of the 20th century's bloodiest chapters. The majority of the actual killings in the countryside were carried out by ordinary civilians under orders from the leaders. Tutsi and Hutu lived side by side in their villages, and families all knew each other, making it easy for Hutu to identify and target their Tutsi neighbors. An estimated 200,000 people participated in the perpetration of the genocide. 
participants in the, in the genocide were given incentives. They were told, if you will kill these people, if you kill your neighbors, your, your Hutu neighbors, or your Tutsi neighbors, you'll get money, food, or land. The Hutu were allowed to appropriate the land of the Tutsis they killed. And the killings were brutal, and the things that went on are... I've already said too much. I mean, it's very horrible to read any, just even a fragment of what went on. More than 70, and here's the, here's the worst part of it all. More than 70% of the Hutus and Tutsis who slaughtered each other professed to be Christians. About 56%, 58 were Roman Catholic, 15% were Protestant, and 6 were Adventists for whatever that matters. Um, <clears throat> would you say that killing your Christian neighbors qualifies as hating your brother? The darkness had blinded their eyes as they plunged into senseless killing of each other. There was a boy, his English name was Claude. I couldn't pronounce his, his, uh, his Rwandan name, his tribal name. When the genocide took place, he was a boy. His parents were killed his sisters raped, and many other of his relatives and friends were killed, often by people they knew as family friends. In fact, most of the time, people knew their killers as family friends. By the time Claude was 17, he was obsessed with plans for revenge. He imagined in detailed ways he could kill the one who had killed his father and the others who had killed family members and harmed his family members. But seven years later, Claude had connected with an organization called Solace, S-O-L-A-S-C-E, that helped those orphaned by genocide. Gradually, he began learning how to take his grief and bitterness to Jesus. During a time of prayer with a couple of widows of the genocide, Claude was impacted by the promise that God had not left him as an orphan, but had given him the Holy Spirit. God also reminded Claude that he was a member of, of the household of God, adopted by a loving Heavenly Father, God reminded Claude that he too had been forgiven. The knowledge of that forgiveness began to work in his heart and convict him. Claude knew he needed to let go of the hatred in his heart for the people who had killed his family. He knew that he needed to forgive them. Over the weeks and months following, he was able to offer forgiveness to the perpetrators. So, for example, one who had killed his grandmother and aunt and uncle said, Can you possibly forgive me? I should have come to you. So Claude was going, going to those who needed to seek him for forgiveness and proposing Uh, to offer them forgiveness. So because Christ shined the light of his love into Claude's heart, Claude's hatred for his haters began passing away. Christ's love began to overcome the darkness of his own hatred and cause him to love others even as Christ had loved them. We all struggle to love one another in far less extreme circumstances because I've noticed we haven't had a genocide in Camus lately but we all struggle to love in even, quote-unquote, small ways. So that's why 1 John 1, 9 is really great. If we confess our sins, our sins and failure to love one another, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, faithful to forgive and cleanse. His love forgives and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So whether you need Christ's light to love that hard-to-love person, or you are that hard-to-love person, continue to seek Jesus to help us be good lovers of other Christians, of our church family. 
always pray and ask, how can I love like Jesus loved? Let's pray. Father, I praise you that you know our hearts completely. You see the residual darkness that's still in our hearts, even though we're children of light if we've come to Christ. Or you see if we really are still in darkness. We may not be as bad as we could possibly be to to have that label, but without the light of Christ, everything that we have is tainted and corrupted by darkness, by anti-God, anti-God light mindset and speaking and living. Otherwise, your son died for nothing if we didn't need to be rescued from darkness. But he died because we could not create our own light and come out of the darkness. We needed him who is the light. Him In him who is the light of life. So thank you, Father, for loving us so incredibly. Just to talk about it causes me to see just how how incredibly great your love is that I can't even describe it. But thank you, Father. So search our hearts and help us to see ways that we need to confess how we've fallen short in loving our own families as Christians, in loving our church family, loving other Christians. And Father, I know that that we are to love those who are not Christians as well because you did that. You so loved the world that you gave your only son. But we need to get it right in our own household. So help us, Father. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Hardness and dullness of heart. If any blindness has crept in, would you cause us to see where we've been blind? Renew our hearts. Soften our hearts. I thank you, Father, that I've seen so many encouraging examples of Christ's light, of his love flowing through this body. So, Father, it's easy for me to think, well, there's really not much to apply here because we're such a good bunch. But I know my own heart, and I know how much I need to be renewed and refreshed into the love of Christ for for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So help us, Father. Show us how to love people like Jesus loved, especially the hard-to-love people, because We are hard to love, and Jesus has loved us so greatly. Amen.